the called out ones. And we've called out, been called out to a special place this morning. Before I sort of get into the heavy stuff, I just wanted to tell you a true story. Because some of you know that I used to be a, spent my life in the education system, but it almost, almost didn't happen. You see, I became a Christian when I was about 20, and I was, went back studying at university, and I'd only been a Christian about 18 months, but I kept running into all these teachers. And I would say, why on earth do you want to be a teacher? Because I met a number of student teachers as well. And they say, well, you know, it's, it's great because you see kids learn and you get 10 weeks holiday. And in those days, they actually paid you to go to teacher's college so you got a living wage. And I thought, this sounds interesting. So I decided I would apply for teacher's college. So I got an interview and I went along and I was interviewed by the principal of the teacher's college. We had a, a big office and he sat behind this huge desk. Now, you have to remember that I was only been a Christian for 18 months or so, and I was keen, super keen. So I was wearing a little Jesus badge, shape of a fish, and about three centimetres across. And he spotted that, and the first question he asked me was one I was not prepared for. He said, do you think Catholics are Christians? <laughs> well, I didn't know any Catholics, and I was thinking, he must be one. Well, it's why ask? And I'd heard a rumour of, of, of some charismatic Catholics, so I thought, some of them must be. So I said, yes. And then proceeded to give me a lecture about how teachers should not proselytise, should not preach to the kids in their class. And I sensed very much I was on the back foot, because he thought I was some sort of religious nutter, which may have been close to the truth, I don't know. So I, uh, I thought, I'd better say something. So I said, look, I believe my Christian faith will motivate me to be the best teacher I can be. But he wasn't convinced. So a few days later, I got a letter to say that my application for Teachers College had been declined, but I was welcome to apply in a year's time. And I thought, yeah, right. But a funny thing happened. I went back to, to university and I worked hard and passed everything, but that desire to be a teacher was still there. And I thought... But, but God, I prayed about this before and it didn't work. Why is that desire still there? So I went for a second interview. Same big corner office and same principal behind the same big desk. But I wasn't wearing my Jesus badge. And uh, the interview went surprisingly well. He then said, you're accepted. I thought, oh, that was quick. And, but he stunned me. He said, well, actually, because you've got two-thirds of your degree, we're going to put you straight into the second year. And I was stunned again. Apparently there were half a dozen of us who were in this category. So, and he said, further, we're going to reduce your workload so that you can study a paper at university. Sweet. So for two years, I did the, completed the teacher's college course and also picked up another couple of papers at university. So I was only one shy of my degree. And then after your... Uh, theoretical training, you have to do what's called a probationary assistant year. So I was given this hand-picked class of little darlings who were eight years old at a school that was a stone's throw from the university. So a couple of days a week after school finished, I would go along and at my lectures. So at the end of uh, that year, 
I received my certificate in teaching, which I rushed in and got framed and stuck it on the wall. I then got a letter to say, would you please give your certificate back? And I thought, what? Because we want to give you a diploma. Apparently they had a rule that if you've got a degree and you complete the teacher training, you can then have a diploma. So I thought, okay. So I reluctantly took it out of the frame and sent it back and got my diploma. Now looking back on it, I thought I'd heard the Holy Spirit tell me to go to teacher's college. And had my plan worked, I'd have gone to teacher's college, spent three years there, then a year doing the um, practical training, and would have come out with a certificate in teaching and an incomplete degree. But God's plan had been for the same four years that I complete a diploma in teaching, which is higher, and I complete my degree. And when I went to work in another school next year, I found out that when you got a diploma, you get paid more. What I didn't know was that having a degree and a diploma would open doors for me in the years ahead. So my plan wasn't as good as God's plan. It never is. Yeah. Here this morning is that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. He is a person. And if you're a person, you have certain aspects of personality. You have a mind, you have emotions, and you have a will. And what I didn't know at the stage was that the Holy Spirit had a mind. And his mind is... Ah, thank you. Um, I think I did tell you last time that technology and I sometimes don't always get on. Um, but I discovered that this verse in 1 Corinthians says that the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. And so the Spirit, Holy Spirit knows what the Father knows, which is everything. And he knows that when we make a decision, when we're trying to follow him, he knows the consequences of that decision and what opportunities lie ahead. So that's why following the prompting of the Holy Spirit is always a good idea. But the Holy Spirit also has a will. And there's a story in Acts chapter 16 which demonstrates this. Now we think the Holy Spirit is there to help us, and he is, but he has a, a will of his own. He has a plan that he's trying to follow, and that involves bringing the good news of, of the gospel to everybody on the planet. And the story you'll find in Acts 16, it's when Paul is travelling through in his second missionary journey. Remember the first missionary journey, he got into southern Turkey, planted a couple of churches. He then thought, it'd be a good idea to go back and visit them. But when he was in the middle of Turkey, he had this idea. He thought, let's go north. Let's go to the province of Asia. And so he tried. But he had this strong feeling that the Holy Spirit said no. In fact, it's recorded in Acts 16 that the Holy Spirit forbade him to go. He wasn't allowed to go to Asia. And he thought, hmm, but I'm sure that's what, it, what I should do. We don't know how he felt the Holy Spirit said no. Maybe he felt a check in his spirit or something in his gut wasn't right. Or maybe he was 
led by circumstances. Maybe he went to the local travel agency and said, excuse me, when is the next camel train going to Asia? And the guy said, sorry mate, you've missed it, it's left, it's not another one for a month. Maybe he looked at his Bible, but it's a problem. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. So I thought, well, maybe he had a pocket scroll of the Old Testament, but it would have been huge, and they were pretty rare. And then I remembered, he was a Pharisee. And to be a Pharisee, you had to learn heaps and heaps of Scripture by heart. So he knew a lot. So maybe he thought about Scriptures that he knew. We don't know. But Paul was determined. He then thought, hmm, maybe if I can't go to Asia, I can go to Bithynia. So he tried that, but the Spirit of Jesus said, nope. So he kind of drifted west until he got to Troas, and there he got a vision of a Macedonian. Now, I don't know how he knew what Macedonians looked like. Um, they come from northern Greece, and maybe it's a bit colder up there, so he wore sheepskin coat. I don't know. But when he saw that vision, he thought, aha, that's where I'm supposed to go. So he went off then into uh, Greece, had lots of adventures, and, and founded a number of churches. But the real point of the story is the Holy Spirit expressed his will to him. For a start, he was trying to fulfill God's will, but he was being told no. And sometimes God says that to us. He says no. And sometimes he says not yet. And sometimes he says, yes. Now the Holy Spirit also has emotions. That's one of the things that people have. In Ephesians chapter 4, when Paul is writing to the Ephesians, he gives them a list of things towards the end when he says they shouldn't do. He says, don't steal. Don't steal. And he says, don't get bitter and twisted and angry because if you do that, It'll fester. And at the end of these, he says, this list of things they said they shouldn't do, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. In other words, don't make the Holy Spirit sad. When he wrote to the um, Corinthians, he was a bit blunter than that. He said, don't be immoral in matters of sex. You, know you, you surely know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Corinthians were a bit different from the Ephesians because the, the Corinth was a, a fairly wealthy place, but it had a big temple um, which had a thousand prostitutes in it. The whole city was, was immoral. In fact, even the, the other Greek cities thought the Corinthians were immoral. They thought they were a bunch of drunks. And if you were a Greek playwright and you wanted to have a drunk in your play, you made him a Corinthian. So they were people who were tempted by, surrounded by vice and tempted to fall back into it. And what Paul said was, look, you know, you will grieve the Holy Spirit if you do this. You will make him sad. The Holy Spirit has given you self-control and that's what you'll be exercising. But he didn't get angry at them. He just got sad when they fell back into sin. Which I think is something encouraging for us. When we, when we fail, when we stuff up, God is not angry. He's just a bit sad. Now, the question is, can anything make the Holy Spirit angry? Now, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I did find it hard to find an image that could convey this question. 
And do you know there is? And the story begins in Acts chapter 4. At the end of Acts chapter 4, there's a story about a guy called Joseph. He's a Levite. But he was such a positive guy that they renamed him Barnabas, the son of consolation. Because if you were feeling down, he would come alongside and encourage you. Now you need to remember that at this stage, the Jews were fairly tribal. And so each Jew knew his, what tribe he was in, he knew what land he was associated with. And it's quite possible that the land which Barnabas owned was land he had inherited. And you find reading in Acts that people were coming and they were selling some of the possessions and giving money to the church. Because the church at that stage was operating this enormous food bank and was supporting a whole lot of widows. But Barnabas does something unusual. He sells a piece of land. And possibly it's a piece of ancestral land. It's of great value to him. And so when he sells the land and brings the money into the church, people are really amazed. He's so enthralled with Jesus. He's so dedicated. He's such a disciple that he's done this. And his status went way up. Now watching him was a couple called Ananias and Sapphira. And they thought... Wow, look at that. We would like to have that status too. Wouldn't it be good if people thought we were wonderful? We just happen to have a piece of land. Let's sell it and we'll bring the money in, but we won't give all of it. We'll hold some back. We'll say that we're giving it all, but we're just pretending. We're going to give, keep some back and people will think we're great. In fact, what we'll do is we'll do it in two stages. And Ananias said, I'll come in first with a bag of money and I'll give it to the, the apostles. And they'll think, yay, good old me. And then a bit later, you come in, Sapphira, and when you come in, they will say, yes, you're one of this generous couple. We will praise you. So Ananias went in and things to, to custard because Peter came up to him and said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And so, next thing, wham! He struck down dead. And being a hot day, they cut, the deacons carted him out to the cemetery and buried him. Some hours later, about three hours I think it was, uh, Sapphira came in, expecting to be greeted and cheered because she had given money to the church. But when she came in, I'm sure there was a deathly quiet. And she thought, ooh, something's not right. And they've all been looking at her. And then Peter came up and said, why did the two of you agree to test the Lord's spirit? The men who buried Ananias are by the door, and they will carry you out. And wham! She was struck down dead, and they carried her out. Now, the local community had been watching the church for a while because they were doing some strange things. They were being very generous and they said, look how these people love one another, how they care for one another. And they were hearing some other rumours coming out of the church as well of people being struck down dead. And, so, and Acts 5.11 tells us, and a great fear came over the whole church and over all those who heard about these things. So what, I wonder what people said. 
Hey, have you heard of that place down the road? They're giving out free food. Well, we could go down there and pretend we need some. Oh, no, you better not tell them porkies, because wham! Right? So they were given some a wide berth, but people were still watching them. Just like people are still watching us today. So why did the Holy Spirit act so dramatically? Because you don't find the story anywhere else in the scripture. Well, Jesus explained in John 16 that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And who is the father of lies? Satan. And the Holy Spirit enabled Peter to see that Satan had got a, a, a hold on Ananias and was trying to subvert the church. And when the spirit of truth meets the father of lies, the spirit of truth wins every time. So, on a more positive note, can you make the Holy Spirit happy? Well, yes, you can. There's another story in Acts. This one is in Acts 10. In the middle of your slide, you'll see a little place called Joppa on the coast, which is where Peter was staying with a friend of his. And he got a request to go up north to Caesarea to talk to Cornelius' household. And Peter was a staunch Jew, and Cornelius was a Roman. So Peter wasn't that keen to go. But he did go. And when he was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening. Now, the Greek word is epipipto. Now, that has a special meaning. Because it doesn't mean fall from the ceiling. It actually means to embrace. Or it can mean to rush excitedly towards somebody. Now, I've seen this at the airport. You know, when you go and you're waiting for your grandchildren to get off the plane, they get off and they come through and they go, Nana, Granddad, and they run. They run and they leap at you. And if it hasn't happened to you, you're sure you'll see it happening to other people. That's epipepto. So what it really means is the Holy Spirit was so excited that these people gave their hearts to Jesus, he gave them a hug. Which I think is a much nicer way of thinking about it than to think of the Holy Spirit sort of going... <laughs> on top of you because the Holy Spirit his function, his joy is to lead us to Jesus it's not to condemn us you know in the first century when the, Holy, the scriptures were being written and the stories of the, New, of the Holy Spirit were being written down in the book of Acts the church began to spread and began to grow and by the second century it had expanded into most of the Roman Empire but in the 3rd century, some problems started to appear. And so, in head office, they were getting these reports of people with funny ideas. Some of them thought that Jesus was less than God. Some of them thought that whatever stuff God was made of, Jesus was made of different stuff. And so, there was all this conflict. So, the church did what most organisations did. Eventually, they had a committee meeting. And this was at a place called Nicaea. And there they established that Jesus was of the same status of God, as God. And whatever stuff that God was made of, Jesus was made of the same stuff. They even have a special Greek word for it, which sounds something like homoousis. But as you see there from the diagram, a piece was missing. So 
About 50 years later, they had another committee meeting at Constantinople, and they're made of, the Holy Spirit is made of the same stuff. C, co-eternal with the Father and Jesus, and D, all of the above. Now, the, whole, the church took 300 years or so to work this out. So I'm going to give you about 300 milliseconds. Okay? Now, you don't have to raise your hands. You don't have to call out. All you have to do is think carefully, is it A, B, C, or D? All right? And I can see from your faces that you've got that. Great. Now, if you see D, all of the above, then congratulations, you have passed Theology 101. Now, having settled that the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity of equal status, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? Now, so I'm going to quickly flick through some major things. In the past, he inspired the writing of the Bible. In fact, Calvin thought this was the Holy Spirit's greatest achievement. Now he helps believers understand the Bible. So when you open up the Bible and want to read it, you can pray and the Holy Spirit will help you. In the past, he helped people worship God. And guess what? Today, he still helps people worship God. In the past, he inspired the heroes of faith like Moses when he opened part of the Red Sea. Today, he helps us find new people. He helps us seek out new civilizations and boldly go where no Christian has been before and preach the gospel. In the past, he empowered the church, particularly at Pentecost. Today, he empowers us. So when your spiritual batteries are getting a bit low, don't go down to the local charging station. Read your Bible, pray, put on some Christian music, and above all, come to church where some like-minded people can surround you and worship with you and pray with you. In the past, the Holy Spirit gave gifts to believers of prophetic insight, of words of wisdom and, he and gifts of healing. Today, he still gives the same gifts to believers. So, now to the nitty-gritty. How can the Holy Spirit help us today? Well, first of all, he lives in us. See, we often say, you know, I received Jesus into my heart, which sounds nice, but Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. It's actually the Holy Spirit who comes in and activates our spirit. I know it's a bit confusing because the Holy Spirit is sometimes called the Spirit of Jesus. In Matthew 10, he's even called the Spirit of the Father. So it is a bit of a mystery. But because he indwells us, he does certain things for us. For example, he activates our conscience. We can now tell the difference between right and wrong. He also helps us discern the truth because he is the spirit of truth. We now live in an age of misinformation, fake news, our governments lying to their people. And who do you believe? Well, you can believe the Holy Spirit because he will guide you and, and give you the insight as to what is true and what is false. Sometimes the Holy Spirit heals us directly. And if you're sick, you ask someone to pray for you, and next day you wake up and, wow, you just feel great. Other times, he works through medical professionals. Whenever I know of someone who's going to hospital I, or to the doctor, and it's serious, I pray that God would grant those medical people 
insights, they at least get the diagnosis right. And I think that our medical professionals have been under great pressure these last few years, and we're very gifted. I've met a few of them, not intentionally, but <clears throat> when I've been carted off to hospital or something, and we do need to pray for them, because God can work through them, and some of you know this quite well. Now, the Holy Spirit does all this for us, but what are we going to do for him? How can we help the Holy Spirit even today? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, it says, You are royal priesthood. And Peter was explaining to the believers of his day that once they hadn't been a people of God, but now they were. And more than that, they are a royal priesthood, which means they are empowered to pray for other people. But some of us don't feel like we are part of a royal priesthood because we realise that our stuff-ups, our sins, our mistakes have separated us from God and we don't feel we're worthy of getting out there and praying for people. But Jesus has closed that gap. In a moment we're going to have communion and which you're all familiar with. Now, when, once you've taken communion, I'm going to ask you to do something a bit different. I'm going to ask you to pray a blessing on somebody else. Now, it can be the person next to you, or it can be someone else across, from across the room from you. Now, if you're not sure what a blessing is, it's just something good, right? So you can go to someone and say, look, I just pray that the Lord will bless your finances a lot. They're not going to say no. And if you see someone my age, then pray that they're going to have good health. Again, you're going, to, you're going to be on a winner. If you see a young person, pray that they will have good friends at school. If you're someone else and you say, well, what do I pray for this person? Pray that they would know the peace of God that passes all understanding. Pray that they would know the height and depth and width of God's love. There are so many positive things you can pray for them. Right? They don't have to share some deep need. Just pray a blessing on them. And if they are working or travelling, pray that they will have journey mercies and that they will be free from accident and injury. There are so many positive things you can pray. You see, we really are a royal priesthood. And once you have sensed God's forgiveness, then you, are, you can really be activated by... You have that delegated authority to pray for others. On the same night Jesus was betrayed, he said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And the new covenant is quite simple. If we confess our sins, then Jesus is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which means we can stand before a holy God and we don't have to fear any judgment at all. So, in your own time, would you please come and take the elements and go back to your seat. And as you do, as you reflect upon God's goodness and the forgiveness of your sin, realise that the Holy Spirit has empowered you so you can pray for others.